Steve Jobs, Apple's late co-founder and CEO, displayed incredible drive and creativity. But like all of us, Jobs struggled with idolatry. Surprisingly, his idol wasn't technology, it was food. Steve Jobs was obsessed with food in ways that dominated his life and his relationships. As a teenager, he experimented with strange diets. At one point, he went for two weeks only eating apples. The various diets, often based on raw food, gave Jobs an exhilarating sense of control. See, like all idols, his obsession worked at first. It was part of Jobs' larger project of attaining to superhuman control over his surroundings and other people, intimately linked with his perfectionism. Indeed, Jobs' idolatrous relationship to food may have cost him his life. In October of 2003, a scan turned up isolate cell cancer, a rare version of pancreatic cancer that is slow-growing and consequently almost always curable with prompt surgery. But Jobs' idle food as a method of control failed him in this area. Here's what his biographer writes. Jobs decided not to have surgery to remove the tumor, which was the only accepted medical approach. I really didn't want them to open up my body, he says, so I tried to see if a few other things would work. He told me years later with a hint of regret. Specifically, he kept to a strict vegan diet with large quantities of fresh carrot and fruit juices. And for nine months, as his uh, friends and family pleaded with him to have surgery, Jobs refused. The biographer goes on to say this. Not until July of the next year did he consent to remove part of his pancreas. And during the surgery, the doctors found that the cancer had spread. Jobs would never again be free of cancer. And just over eight years later, he was dead at age 56. He was in the terminal stage, not of cancer, but of idolatry. When the idol ceases to deliver, but exacts its full demands of unwavering worship, when the public became aware that Jobs was increasingly gaunt, commentators uh, suspected that Jobs' disease had come back with a vengeance. What few knew was that his wasted body was not just the result of cancer, but also of his own dependence on control through food. You see, we use this word control all the time, but have you ever stopped to consider what we are attempting to do? When we control, think about it. Having control means that we believe we can change things. We can change things with our thoughts, with our emotions, with our actions. It means we believe we have the power over circumstances, that we have power over people to change their direction at will. Control. Control tries to create certainty in uncertain circumstances. You see, uncertainty occurs when we're not sure what will happen. What will happen if the money runs out? What will happen if their love isn't unconditional? What will happen if my job is eliminated? What will happen if they don't return my call? What will happen if you fill in the blank? We feel that if we let go and allowed life to happen, then it would spiral out of control and we would never be who we long to be. 
You see, what we see in Steve Jobs, what we see in our lives, we also see in, the, in General Naaman in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The need to control for certainty. Now, simply meeting Naaman, we discover that he is the poster boy for a man in control. Naaman is an Aramean, a non-Jew, who is the general over the king's army. And he has served with such distinction that he is known as a, the text says, a great man, a highly regarded, a valiant soldier, verse 1. And can't you picture him in his uniform with medals plastered to his chest? For years, Naaman's life involved barking orders and people responding with, yes, sir, and then carrying out the orders out to the smallest detail. You see, if you can't be king, being a general is the next best thing. It is all about controlling certainty. But Naaman lost all of that because of a bacteria, of all things. In fact, it's almost humorous. A heroic, powerful general taken down by a microscopic bacteria, a germ that caused the skin disease, leprosy. Now, instead of barking orders that bring underlings running to him, now everyone points at him and they yell, leper, and they run from Naaman. Naaman has fallen from the heights of greatness to the bottom of being helpless. Now, as bad as things are, he's not yet desperate. You see, his wife uh, has just hired a Jewish servant girl, and she was captured by a gang of raiders and sold into service to Naaman's wife. Well, upon hearing about the general's condition, this powerless, insignificant Jewish slave girl share some good news with Naaman about a prophet of God that could save him, that could heal him. Man, talk about God's providence. But when a person is so used to being in control, rarely will they consider what God may be doing around them because they're too busy trying to take matters into their own hands. Well, that's Naaman. Listen to what it says in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 4 to 5. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. Verse 5, by all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, that's 750 pounds, and 6,000 shekels of gold, 150 pounds, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Isn't that interesting? Power prefers to deal with power. Rarely does power feel comfortable dealing with the humble. Anyways, instead of following the Jewish girl's advice to seek out the prophet of Israel, Naaman goes directly to the king of Israel. Now, Naaman makes an impressive entrance up to the palace. Picture him in his limousine with a semi full of gifts and equipment behind him. Naaman's servants, they unload the gifts and take them to the king of Israel, along with a note from the king of Aram. And having read Naaman's note, asking for healing, the king of Israel tears his robe in two and he says, Who do you think I am, God? Have I ever brought back to life a person I have killed? 
This Naaman, this Naaman must be trying to trick me. You see, the king of Israel admits he is powerless. He is helpless to heal Naaman. So Naaman is now waiting for the gold, silver, and clothes to be repacked in the semi so they can leave. Well, while everyone is packing up the truck, the king of Israel's messenger runs through the movers and up the stairs to the palace. The messenger has this message, and here's what it says to the king. Dear honorable king, I have heard you have torn your royal robe in two. May I ask why? Like you, I do not know why a leopard would think a king has the power to heal. What this man needs is a prophet from God. Please have him come to me so he may discover the authority that God has given his prophet. I promise, king, he won't be disappointed if he follows my instructions. Sincerely, Elijah, God's supernatural man. Sure enough, Naaman pulls up to the front door of Elijah's house with his caravan following behind him. Now, Elijah's house, the house of a prophet, man, it needs a fresh coat of paint. It has seen its better days. If the house represents the man, Naaman has no idea why he is here. Because Elijah's house is a shack. You see, people of power and influence, they don't live in shacks. And yet, despite appearances, Naaman knocks on the door. Well, a a servant opens the door, and in the background, Naaman can see an odd man. An odd man dressed in a robe made of animal hair with a leather belt around his waist, sitting with his back to Naaman. It's the prophet Elijah. Elijah doesn't stand up. He doesn't greet Naaman. Elijah simply sits there, possibly in prayer. Well, whatever he was doing, there was nothing in his appearance or actions that showed Elijah was a man of status. There was nothing in his appearance that showed he was a man of honor or power. And Naaman's first reaction was to step back and to make sure he was at the correct address. But yep, this is the place. Elijah's servant tells Naaman, God has told the prophet Elijah that you should go and wash seven times in the Jordan so your flesh may be restored and you will be cleansed. Then the servant closed the door. Naaman was furious. The Jordan River is at least 20 miles away from Samaria. So it would take his caravan a minimum of two days to get there. And why? To humiliate Naaman by plunging himself seven times in the dirty water of the Jordan? That makes no sense. Naaman thought Elijah would come out and he would speak a spell over him and presto, he would be healed. But to do what Elijah has commanded... Naaman is thinking, I would rather stay a leper than follow this crazy prophet's advice. And that's when we see a wise and humble servant come up to Naaman and say, But master, if the prophet asked you to do something difficult befitting a mighty warrior like yourself, wouldn't you do it? Then why won't you do this simple thing to be healed? Having been convinced by the servant, they went to the Jordan. 
And Naaman waded in, and he plunged himself into the water once. No change. Twice, no change. A third time, nothing. And at this point, rage is growing in Naaman's gut. He feels like a fool. What hero of war would ever take orders from a Jewish slave girl, a crazy prophet, and even his simple servant? This must be a conspiracy to mock him, he thinks. Naaman has a moment of clarity, and he thinks, I've done this much. I might as well listen to the prophet and see if Elijah really is God's man. Four, five, six. And after his seventh plunge, Naaman comes out of the water, and the text says that his flesh was restored and became like that of a young boy. Verse 14. You see, that word young, it's the same word used to describe the Jewish girl who was taken captive back in verse 2, a young girl from Israel. Get the picture. God used that young Jewish girl to lead this powerful Gentile general to have skin like a young boy. You see, what we see happen is the, is the greatest becomes like the least in the waters of cleansing. Hear that again. The greatest becomes like the least in the waters of cleansing. What the events of Naaman are showing us is God's providence is most often found in those we dismiss as being weak, powerless, simple. Who are the heroes God uses to get Naaman to surrender? A young Jewish girl taken captive, a crazy prophet, and a courageous servant. If God can use them, God can use me. If God can use them, God can use you. This text should cause you to hear 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 differently. It reads this, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Notice how everyone points to Elijah being the key to Naaman's healing. Yet Elijah never acts like a hero. His presence in this story is always in the background. Why? I think it's because godly people, godly people are willing to be used by God in hidden ways. Hidden ways so that God receives the attention, so God receives the glory. In the New Testament, we see another encounter between a leper and a man named Jesus. Lepers were walking corpses. They were cast out to the outermost fringe of society so as not to infect others. In fact, they were required to stay 50 paces away from other people to prevent them from be becoming unclean. Besides being sick, this man was no longer able to worship, no longer able to work because of his disease. Who would want to worship? next to a leper? Who would want to buy a product that the leper had touched? Lepers were a desperate people. Therefore, 
We are surprised by the leper in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. Because this leper's desperation is so great, he breaks the distance rule by running up to Jesus and getting on his knees and begging Jesus to be cleansed. Now, I want you to catch this. This is important. In verse 40, the leper asks to be made clean not healed. In fact, nowhere in the text does the leper ask to be healed, but four times he asks to be cleansed. You see, the leper realizes his problem isn't a medical issue. The leper has a spiritual cleansing that is needed, because as a Jew, cleanliness was a sign of holiness. Therefore, a priest, not a doctor, was the one who determined if a person had leprosy or not. Skin covered in disease. It was a sign of a soul that was diseased by sin. So the priest was to examine the person's skin to determine the condition of their soul. You get the picture? See, this man's cleansing would restore his social status. He could return to his family, his faith community, his job. He could become an active participant among God's people again if he were cleansed. Also, when the leper says, you can make, literally, you can declare me clean, the leper is approaching Jesus as a priest, one who had the power and the authority to declare a person clean and restore them to being a normal part of society. We don't know how, but unlike Naaman, this leper believes. He believes Jesus has the power and authority of a Jewish priest. And the only barrier the leper sees is if Jesus chooses to cleanse him. Verse 40. Being deeply moved by the leper's desperation, Jesus reaches out and touched the man. Now, this wasn't simply a touch of pity. It was more a touch of presence. Think of a time. Think of a time when you were in distress and a strong hand was set on your shoulder. Or maybe a gentle caress on your back reassured you that it was going to be okay. That is the touch that's being described. The touch of presence. Jesus is saying, it will be okay. I am willing. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy vanished. I love this. This is so cool. Did you see who was contagious in this story? Did you see who was contagious? Now, we would expect it to be the leper. Because just one touch from a leper would make you an outcast yourself. Jesus was the one who was supposed to be made unclean by the touch of the leper. But what happens instead? This is powerful. Through the touch of Jesus, cleanliness, wholeness, holiness infected the leper. The leper takes on Jesus' wholeness. Boy, I hope you see yourself in Naaman and the leper.
In fact, let me ask you this strange question. Like a leper, if your skin became a reflection of the sin in your life, how disfigured would you look to others? If that were the case, how would you describe your level of desperation to be cleansed by Jesus? In imagining how our sin would look as leprosy on our skin, we discover how we look to Jesus. And that gives me goosebumps. Jesus, upon seeing us as we are, He is deeply moved and He's compelled to touch us that we might be cleansed, that we might be made whole and holy. Would you like to know how to be made whole? It is simple. Be desperate for Jesus and be washed in the waters of cleansing. If you have questions of how you can live out your faith, how you can have a desperate faith for Jesus and be cleansed in the waters of cleansing, reach out to us. Make a comment on this screen right here or, or email us at connect.blendville at gmail.com. That's connect.blendville at gmail.com. If you want to know how to be made holy through Jesus Christ, don't delay. Reach out to us today. God bless.